0: Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR, from emdr approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. And welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Bridger and I are here in the studio, just the two of us, to dive into a really exciting topic. Um, our season here on special populations mm. and special protocols has really just set up tons of topic discussions for us. Mm-hmm. So in selecting today's episode, I was really excited to dive in um, because it's so much in alignment with our case conceptualization model. Yes. So today we're going to talk about parent-child relationship and attachment, mm-hmm. and how do we begin to work with that specifically with EMDR? Um, and there's so many ways. There's just gonna say, so much there.
1: I'm aware of the outline we have for this episode, and yet but it could even go still, anywhere. Oh my gosh! Yes. So I'm very curious to see where we actually end up.
0: This feels like it could be one of those that we end today saying, and there's going to be a part two. (laughs) Or
1: part 98.
0: (laughs) There's more to talk about. Yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is so much a fundamental aspect. When we start getting into attachment and Mm -hmm. parent child relationship, it's a fundamental component of how we conceptualize cases. Yes. So it's one
1: of the most central.
0: Yes. Those early relationships are the beginning of everything. Mm-hmm. They are the foundation of everything. Yes. So as we're looking at processing trauma, um, we always need to be orienting back to mm-hmm. those early attachment relationships and looking at what kind of foundation is this structure even built upon. Yes. Before we know where do we start, you know, replacing pieces or working on pieces. Like how stable is that foundation in the first place. Mm-hmm. So my thought in this episode is to be looking at the origins of all of that and building that foundation, but then specifically looking at how do we work with mm-hmm. the parent-child dyad mm-hmm. in helping to repair some of those ruptures or wounds in attachment, um, helping to identify some of the barriers and limitations and of safety in that connection. Yeah. So. A lot,
1: yeah, and I think just one quick kind of point is that when we're talking about ruptures of attachment, the goal is not um for there to be no ruptures. Mm-hmm. you know the the real point, and this is just pure Dan Siegel, <laughs> the real point is that there would be repair of ruptures. That's yeah. what actually uh, strengthens one's. Uh, internal working model and their sense of self and their sense of other that ultimately leads to secure attachment. Yeah. So in this conversation, there's the potential I feel for some to walk away with this, uh, you know, worry or shame or mm-hmm. guilt of, oh man, I, we got to avoid these ruptures. We have to always make sure that um, there is that security. I think that's, that's fine. But to understand that in actually forming a secure attachment and what we're ultimately trying to foster between ourselves and our clients as well as our our clients and their safe group of people that that necessitates rupture and repair Mm -hmm. there has to be both Uh, there can't just be no no rupture and we just walk around as perfect (laughs) utopian beings Um, our strength you know our resilience our grit our self-efficacy our autonomy all these kind of things we look at as really desirable uh, kind of traits in graduating somebody from therapy those come from repairing ruptures
0: right right like that's that's what the therapeutic relationship really is about yeah. is and that's i think that's a huge piece in this as we're looking at the rupture repair we don't always get the opportunity yeah. to repair with the one who originally yes. we ruptured with yeah and when we're looking at this child parent relationship Maybe we're working with kids in foster care. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Maybe we're working with kids who have parents who don't have the capacity to repair in the way the child needs it. Maybe we're working with a grown adult, yeah, who is no longer in a parent child, yeah, you know, young child dynamic anymore. That and was now one of the
1: yeah, that was one of the points that I definitely wanted to to see come from this episode was that you know sometimes well sorry i I appreciate that we talk about them in the way of like these are distinct populations children and adults and I think that's absolutely relevant that we need to be you know titrating the material that we're trying to process and that we're trying to guide them through protocol wise right. uh, to the population specifically however um, if you're an adult you at one time were a child yeah. <laughs> and that means that we're building on the development throughout the lifespan yes. it's not All that different Um, so as we're calling upon these neurobiological realities of attachment systems those are fine-tuned throughout the lifespan and thus like kind of reflecting what experiences that individual has had in intimate relationships
0: right and it's the differences become in the language we use the specific modalities or interventions that yeah, we might be utilizing. The tools
1: specifically. But
0: the special population we're talking about today is anyone who is or ever has been a kid. Yes. And that is a From very what special I know, population. That's like
1: a majority. I think. Pretty close.
0: So, so in that though, We can do all the work we talk about today with children, Mm -hmm. you know, as they're currently in this development, their childhood development, but we can also do it with adults by accessing through whatever language you want to the child part. Yeah. And you know, we may change the language a bit, or we may not have a mommy in the session holding them while we're doing it. Mm -hmm. But can we create visualizations of that? Can we mimic that in our relationship in some way that feels safe? And so, all of this, we're going to try to talk about the theory and the fundamental pieces while also what my desire is i guess today is be giving some specific examples for all different age ranges how does this work look like in a session and maybe the parents present maybe it's not maybe we are the closest thing to an attachment figure as a therapist for them in the room yes but how can we access this type of material and be um yeah correcting these attachment wounds and healing these attachment wounds Mm. for any age
1: yeah one of the things i love most about having these types of conversations with you is that we can come with our different orientations as far as like my background being so much in these kind of the the topics we're going to be talking about today in attachment and neurodevelopment and yours being in that you know, very grounded in EMDR, mm-hmm. and that we can from there talk about how, like, the field of human sciences has so much to do with this yeah. special population, quote unquote, that we're talking about, yeah. and that EMDR is an amazing way to work with this. But there's so much theory outside of that,
0: so yeah, as well. Yes, and other um, other interventions and approaches we can utilize. Yeah, that I think, as any listener knows my kind of philosophy is EMDR is a broader umbrella. It's not yeah. just a specific intervention. It's not
1: just BLS. Right. Right.
0: Yes. But there's so many things that we can do to really address these attachment, yeah. you know, specific issues. Yeah.
1: And that's mm-hmm. what our our case conceptualization model has done, I think, biased as it would be, but I think has done so well in synthesizing such a large amount of material that has been written about these issues. Um, throughout the kind of lifespan of our discipline and the human sciences as a whole, um, that EMDR can then come along, standing on that foundation, and be able to bring incredible precision yeah. and intentionality to the way in which they're, you know, the clinician is addressing
0: yeah.
1: uh, whatever issue they're actually working on in the session.
0: Yes. So my, I'll, I'm just going to say it to keep myself accountable in this. My <laughs> desire is to we first go to theory and we kind of start on that that more theoretical level and then we ground it in the practical pieces sure. so that everyone listening kind of hears those practical application yeah. pieces. Yeah. So in that, all of this was a beautiful preface <laughs> to say, I wanna start with the first relationship. And we talk about this That's great in sentence. our training. Yeah. And we could probably spin out on this oh, one for a while. I'm
1: trying to hold on to the seat as we're talking.
0: Maybe this is just like a seed for a whole nother episode, just on that.
1: I will always collude with you in okay. that desire. Okay, cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but starting, and I would love to just kind of hand it over to you in that. And yeah. like when we say the first relationship, what does that mean and why is it so important?
1: Yeah. To me, this really the conversation starts at really the kind of most basic level of our mammalian biology, and we'll get to EMDR here in a little bit. But 45
0: minutes, yeah, uh,
1: settle in because (laughs) there we go. But really, why that matters to me so much is that that establishes a lot of the kind of preset. Um, drives the preset instincts the preset um, really needs of uh, organism is to understand its phylogenetic kind of background and so for for human beings being mammalian they are primarily organized around intimate relationships which um, just evolutionarily and to me so beautifully um, is dependent because we rely on that for our development At the most fine level and then all the way up to even our consciousness Mm -hmm. is is dependent on our relational experiences and so for um, human beings being so dependent in those early years of life that's not just for physical development but that's also for psychological and emotional development and in that um, we're looking at the smallest cell being uh, sort of setting the template for how all of experience will unfold after that humans have a very funny way of of creating the structures outside of them that exist inside of them mm-hmm. and so when we're looking at the parent child dyad we're looking at how do i come to know that i am my own individual as a child um, that i'm different mm-hmm. from my mother that I came from, and that we can actually now have a relationship. Like, There's so many things baked into that that all along the way are necessary for developing that child's sense of self and other, Mm -hmm. as well as updating the mother's sense of self and other. So as we're looking at the mammalian architecture of the child developing from conception in utero to now the birthing process into the postnatal phase, we're looking at a wild series of transitions, both neurobiologically and psychologically
0: and so much of it in such a short oh my gosh period of time yes. like to as we reflect back a time period that we literally have no explicit memory of right and it just feels like a flash even as a parent that time feeling like a flash
1: mm. but you're
0: saying even in that window mm-hmm. everything the template of everything is kind of being mapped out yeah
1: the, yes and i feel like we can talk about memory um In the next episode, because, you know, memory isn't linear. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think so many of us can get caught up in why, why is it so hard to go back to those, like before I could remember Mm -hmm. phases or those in utero memories, memory isn't linear. We force it to be that way linguistically by saying, now, when was that Uh and what happened then? And we kind of demand this, or at least implicitly uh, have a framework in our mind that says, I need I need very linear timelines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I'm very concerned with that. What happened first? What happened next? What, what was the last thing that happened? So before we even realized that we need to put our memory into a linear format, we don't. Like in development, you know, in that like five year, seven year mark, that's when we realized, oh, people care about temporality. Yeah, People care about... Um, the way in which memory is organized so maybe i should start paying attention Mm -hmm. to what came first what came second what came third what was the end and then that's when we can really start to say oh yeah i have memory files that show a temporal recording Mm -hmm. of that Mm -hmm. that experience and so that's what i'm going to now tell when somebody asks me what's your earliest memory yeah um but that again i think is a rabbit trail in itself i think so yeah (laughs) but um when we're looking at the first relationship the the kind of basic takeaway is that that is establishing the templates by which you will uh, develop from here on out Mm -hmm. one of my favorite um uh quotes about development is that it can do nothing but develop on itself Mm -hmm. so as we're looking at what was handed down epigenetically in conception and in In utero phases of development, um, all of what was happening in the mother's environment translates into uh, the in utero environment, and that then has so much to to say about establishing the homeostatic range of the infant and what uh, is pleasing, what's painful. It's it's setting up all of those uh, microphones, so to speak, of like what what senses do you know to pay attention to, and how do you calibrate those senses into making meaning uh, later. So that is where all of that's established. And then in the birthing process into the postnatal phase, you're starting to develop your more midline structures of the brain and into the mammalian brain where your, all of your attachment systems are.
0: So what I feel like is so key here is we connect it directly to EMDR. Mm-hmm. In EMDR, we talk about the information processing systems mm-hmm. and that being so critical. Like, okay, how, like the adaptive information, this means that Something that they experienced didn't get to digest fully, mm-hmm. and the system t- chose to hold on to certain pieces of it, it couldn't work through that. And you know, it didn't hold on to something adaptive, it held on to something maladaptive, all of that language. But what is so just critical here is we're saying from the moment of conception is actually where these processing like, is how their system is learning how to process material, Mm -hmm. how to make sense and make meaning of experiences. Yeah,
1: how you even know what a stimuli is.
0: So oftentimes I feel like in AMDR we float back Mm -hmm. to the earliest memory or or recollection of that kind of trauma network, those channels that Mm -hmm. are associated with a certain experience even in that even when we float back to the earliest time that they can recall we're looking at but why did that 5-year-old make mm-hmm. that kind of meaning out yes. of that experience or that 2-year-old make that meaning out of that experience mm-hmm. this means that everything goes back every single thing of a true float back will always fall mm-hmm. at the first relationship
1: yes absolutely and in the first relationship or the absence of the grief of not having yeah. That close relationship with the you know, the the one who established all of those templates in the first place. Yeah.
0: I my body's just like, let's just sit in that for a minute. And <laughs> I wanna like check in with the listeners. How's that feel to you guys? Yeah, How to are listen you doing to that? with that. But unfortunately they're not here with us and can't respond.
1: Yeah. I, I think the To me where that goes next of why we talk about that is so if that's true, if if the first relationship does provide and establish the the templates by which you're going to navigate the world with forever, looking at that's where personality comes in after the fact. Mm -hmm. Um, Personality is a response of behaviors uh, that are seeking to maintain the homeostasis established in the dynamic between the parent-child-first relationship so when we're looking at you know recreating these early attachment experiences we're talking about evoking the felt sense of what it was like to have needs as a biological organism in relationship with another and to realize that some of me is not okay in this space mm-hmm. or when i ask for something in this way it's responded to in this way and yeah. that creates negative emotions quote unquote these these cortisol driven emotions that to me feel Uh, unsustainable. I don't want to be in that space. So I will cut off my ex, my kind of uh, showing of these behaviors or these desires to please the caregiver in a way that I can still get my needs met while retaining a, you know, an average sense of homeostasis that this is a.
0: Yeah. That, that experience of me just as I naturally am Mm -hmm. in my most organic form isn't acceptable enough. Mm -hmm. And so then comes in, as you're saying, either a cutting off or maybe an adding to, like a shielding of this series of strategies, then this is, okay, well, I still have to survive. Mm -hmm. I still have to find that homeostatic balance. What do I need to add or let go of or shield against um, in these relationships to be acceptable enough? I may not still be fully acceptable, yeah. but to be acceptable enough to still get my needs met. And how do I begin to anticipate what mm-hmm. I might need moving forward and need more of or less yes. of moving forward? And
1: this is where we're really talking about, and I don't want to spin off here, but I have to say this, like yeah. we're really talking about the underpinnings of all of these things we call disorders, mm-hmm. because it's in. In response to these perceived um, procedural or behavioral ways of being in the world that we have, the neurochemical activations uh, that accompany all of these quote-unquote disorders, we've been recognizing them backwards. We've been looking at what are the biological markers? That means it's this disorder. Yeah. That's not how they developed. (laughs) Right. They developed in response to an atmosphere that dictated the presence or the lack of certain behaviors. Yeah. And over time, through reciprocal conditionality—a concept that we talk about in our case conceptualization model—those form patterns, which then form these just ever-present imbalances yeah. that are all seeking to keep homeostasis interpersonally.
0: And so, this doesn't just occur in the, um, you know, in the abusive family or the neglectful family or the rage-filled family. Like this is across the board. Yeah. It's, it's human nature across yeah. the board. It's not just the maladaptive personality traits, or mm-hmm. the. I mean, we would say they're all adaptive, but yep. not just the less desired. It's all of them. Yes. So we're looking at. I think about you know our oldest biological daughter is very oriented towards like feelings and empathy and encouragement, supporting other people. That's because that's so well received in our home. Yeah, it's, it's so celebrated. Well praised. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the things that she's not is because those aren't as accepted or mm. you know praised or um, maybe she feels a, a sense of activation or discomfort from us, yeah. even just without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And so this is just like this ball of clay that's being kind of molded and shaped into being, you know, the person that she is. And then our son is completely different. Mm-hmm. And you know, each child is so unique in how they're shaped to be who they are and so this is happening like across the board which doesn't mean like wow we just you know it's not just this quote-unquote trauma mm-hmm. that creates these differences it's just life it's life experiences it's relationship that shapes each individual into kind of making sense of the world and the way in which they do and adapting to that
1: yes so in recreating these early attachment experiences and what we're trying to it to evoke in these uh sessions is really looking at how did you learn who you were in relationship Mm -hmm. like how did you learn what made up uh the person that you are and the strategies that you used in that time what were some of the dynamics like in that relationship and what was kind of your the, the meaning you made of who you were yeah these sort of global appraisals of self those are really establishing some of the templates that shame will come to occupy and we'll start to see a lot of these treatment resistant presentations even in EMDR Mm -hmm. because the system itself is set up around these, what I call like booby traps Mm -hmm. of we, this can't be true because of all of these experiences. And it's more so this like dense network of shame, but you know, survival positive uh, adaptations in looking at how, uh, I experience myself in relationship.
0: Yeah. And I think even just starting, I love, and this is more with adult clients, but looking at like, what tricks did you realize did you learn you needed around mom? Yeah. Or what tricks did you learn that you needed around dad? Because they're totally different. Mm-hmm. And whether we call them strategies or tricks or weapons or yeah. like, what did you learn that you needed? What was your secret weapon with mom mm-hmm. to get her attention mm-hmm. or to get her appraisal, like her yeah. love or and or affirmation? Yeah, to avoid punishment. the pain, yes, yeah. mm-hmm. and so as we're looking at those, that gives so much information on mm-hmm. these are the strategies, and then those get generalized out. Mm-hmm. So then that says, okay, yeah. all nurturing figures or mother figures or all authority figures, these are the these are the weapons that I'm going to uh, utilize or the tricks that I'm going to. Turn to when I come into contact with someone in authority, they turn into these generalized templates for us to make sense and begin to anticipate mm-hmm. how do we need to be in relationship mm-hmm. moving forward. Yes. And so then that's where we start to see these patterns show up and these, you know, symptoms or, yeah. you know, disorders, they turn into these generalized patterns of this is how we begin to function in the world. Because our systems are anticipating that we need that Hmm. because they were originally learned that clear back to the early relationships.
1: Yeah, one of my soapboxes in this work is that unless there is physical uh, alterations or limitations in a brain structure producing a certain neurochemical release pattern, Mm -hmm. any presentation that you see is actually interpersonally Mm -hmm. based. The neurochemicals are in response to the relationship. And so, as I mentioned earlier, like cortisol driven emotions or any other neurochemical uh, sequence that's going to make a negatively valenced uh, emotional reaction, um, all of those things are pruning and shaping our neural architecture, which then builds on itself. As I said, development can do nothing but build on itself. So whatever experiences you have in these early relationships, that's changing your neurochemistry and your neuroarchitecture, mm-hmm. which then perpetuates this way of development to end you up in the place you are right now. Yeah. So if you're having interpersonal problems right now or you're having any symptom presentation, strategy presentation, that is all in some way mm-hmm. linked back to the first relationship.
0: It will always take us back there. I, that's not to say that is where we always go to start right. our processing, right? But if we can interact with our clients with that knowledge, mm-hmm. with that awareness, it is going to inform how we're approaching, what targets we're selecting, what we can expect, yeah. how how thoroughly can this be processed based on those early relationships, Um, What interweaves might be helpful? What resources are going to be critical? It gives us so much information that we can have going into processing a target from when they're 13 or 10 or maybe Mm -hmm. five, if we're familiar with what was going on in the very first relationship. Yeah.
1: You mentioned what might be needed in our intervention strategy with our clients. I think it also gives you information as to what will not be helpful Mm -hmm. (laughs) or what will be just um, kind of objectively just not effective
0: and maybe even further perpetuate yes the symptom or yes. the strategy that's being utilized mm-hmm. i that i feel like that is such a common like an easy pitfall is to not even realize it but further perpetuate the strategies that their system feel like I need more of this. Mm. I need to do it more rigidly or more intensely. And we can perpetuate those patterns based on how we're approaching it or what we're acknowledging in the memory.
1: Yes. Absolutely. As they
0: process. Yeah. So with that kind of foundation being set up
1: first bullet point
0: <laughs> first bullet point a big one yeah but and, and there's so much more even on that but with that awareness and that kind of setup when we start working then with like someone who is still a child or is maybe trying to mm-hmm. process things from childhood i want to i guess start looking at um the strategy piece of that is so critical mm-hmm. that as the system is learning me just as I, in my most natural organic form, isn't gonna cut it. There's, there's not an, uh, it's not uh, acceptable enough. Mm-hmm. Then strategy starts to become, is created at that point. Yeah. So looking at whether we're working with a child, an adolescent, an adult, Looking at how did that, how is that strategy still at this point maybe acting as a barrier to them to getting the need met now? Mm-hmm. So even though strategy at the time was something that they were utilizing to try to get the need met, mm-hmm. strategy also keeps us from the most genuine form of connection. Mm-hmm. We can't fully experience that deepest pure, pure connection and acceptability if the strategy is in place yeah because then there's the understanding that I'm only acceptable if I u- utilize this strategy
1: yeah I have a number of of uh, clients who are children and for me I don't work with kids without their parents mm-hmm. there um, yeah. that's just how I am <laughs> as a person um, because what I'm so interested in is their relational frameworks. And that is really, to me, what I identify as the a source a lot of a lot of their um, difficulties that they're experiencing in their life right now. Um, and that's my bias, and Bend and I make that known. But for me, mm-hmm. um, in each of the, the cases that I'm reflecting on in my mind as you're talking, it goes back to when we're talking in the session about a, a feeling that they might be having in response to the session or a feeling that they're bringing into the session. Mm-hmm. There will be so many. Examples of how they check in with the parent that's in the session yeah. before they express anything or even if they're going to express anything okay. It's based on is this okay to express right now in this way? Mm-hmm. And so many times the the all ask about that and their response will be something like well I wanted to make I wanted to see what they would you know, she or he depending on the parent of what he would say or what he would think about what I was saying or what she would think about what I was saying. how does
0: this affect mom to hear me say this? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, and that that is really such a central um, kind of contemplative issue in the expression of affect as a child um, in I don't know how they're going to respond to this or I know how they're going to respond and so I'm going to double down and do it because that's what I want to create in them is this feeling.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. yeah Yeah. i think the as a whole at beyond we really value that parent-child relationship in working with them um as I work with kids, I involve parents heavily. I don't. I wouldn't say I necessarily am across the board 100% uh-huh. parents in there for the same reason, though, that you're talking about is to see the difference in strategy, to get a comparison of this is what I see when parent is present and uh-huh. this is what I see when they're not in an attempt to be able to sometimes parent create safety and we get to experience more of child than they Oftentimes, yeah. parent creates a lot have, of strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and sometimes I can access that safety more individually with them and then start inviting parents in and how do we work with those differences yes. that are experienced there.
1: And especially in that first relationship, one of the reasons that I practice exclusively with that dyad as opposed to the individual child is because so, many, so much of their life they are with that relational partner, or they are directly referencing mm-hmm. learnings, emotional learnings that have happened in the context of that relationship, yeah. even if they're with their friends or even if they're with, you know, whoever. So to me, even as they're telling me about a fear of bullying or something at school, mm-hmm. to me, that is directly reflective of some of the experiences they're having in the home Yeah. to where they feel they are relationally unsafe and they can't turn to a teacher that will help them, or yeah. they can't even admit that they're hurt by the bullying experience or stand up for themselves or whatever it is, they feel in, in, incapable of doing yeah. that because of things that are based in the home.
0: Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, how they're making sense of what that bullying experience means about them. Exactly. Goes back to... Yeah,
1: that's building on old templates yes. and old being very fresh because they're in that space now right? Um, it, when we're talking about a child. And so that's just filtering and proving some of the narratives that they're already contemplating from their early relational environment.
0: So that that kind of leads us into the next couple of points of in working with um, a child, parents are always heavily involved, but we've got to be looking at identifying and addressing the child's learned strategies. Mm. What have they learned for protection or for the seeking and then getting their needs met? Mm as we're seeing those strategies, addressing doesn't mean we need to get rid of them. Addressing means acknowledging and seeing the utility of them. Seeking to
1: understand. Yes. Yeah.
0: But also being able to see are, is there enough safety that the child could be experienced without the strategy and still accepted and having the need met, while also doing that same thing for the parent. Mm. So we're monitoring, like, what are the parent strategies that are coming up? Mm. When we're working with a child and the parents in the room, it is not the child's therapy. Right. <laughs> it is the pa- parent-child die-out therapy. Yes. Yes. So we're seeing how does the parent's own strategies come to play? How do they act as barriers for the kid, the child to be able to receive and feel as though they're accepted and safe? And what's the interplay between the two? How do mm-hmm. they come into contact with one another? So sometimes it may be... Working with, I mean, I have many, many times then taken the parent into individual therapy and said, like I there's so yes. many things that are highlighted in this. And so now, how do we support the parent in getting their own support? Yeah. That's not always an option. That's kind of a, a privileged place to be that a parent will welcome that. <laughs> Um, But if it is an option, that's Mm -hmm. a beautiful spot. And being able to see how does work happen, you know, maybe individually, and then the coming back, you know, together in that relationship. Yeah, and that
1: is a bit of of my agenda in (laughs) working in this way in these dyad-based relationships. If I'm working with a child is because so often the the parent um, is just wanting the relationship with their child at best if not the child's behavior to change. That's
0: typically what brings them in. Yes. And
1: so to me, one of the secondary gains I can experience is that I'll at least get to have them in the room as I'm working with their child and them and thus inviting them to show up as more of their subjective selves or their their kind of core uh, strategy creating Mm -hmm. place but not sending the child back into the environment without having addressed that. Yeah directly yes so if if i'm not able to do an individual session with a parent um after the fact um i'm always communicating in some way some of the things that we're working on why we're working on those things yeah. and what uh could be some of the origins and perpetuating experiences of these things
0: this can be some pretty tough conversations brutal <laughs> brutal pretty rough yeah yeah, even on the um, parent end of those, they're hard like yeah. to hear and yeah, to perceive I mean. that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's tough to when when it feels like you know this should just be my child's behavior that needs changed or fixed or modified in some way, and I I want a therapist to give us a plan of this is how we do that, and and for that instead to be turned around and looking at like, hey, parent, how are you showing up? In a way in which that that's perpetuating the need for that behavior yeah. or that approach,
1: and yeah, and that is such a delicate issue to work with because it's so um, it, it carries so much potential for there to be shame, yeah, in it, yeah. Of you know, hey, parent, how are you showing up? That sounds like responsibility language, mm-hmm. and that's that to me is never the goal of those types of sessions. Yeah. Is to say you're directly responsible for this behavior that you want to change in your child. Uh, It's actually your fault. Like That's not (laughs) where we're coming from at all. We're saying that all strategy is based interpersonally. And so whatever you're noticing in your child's behavior is their response to your behavior as well. And so to change anything means we have to address the whole. And if we're not, then we will see those perpetuants take back over and continue to create those adaptations.
0: Well, I think not from a a shame place, but just... Really, practically speaking, there is a responsibility of the parent to participate and engage in yes. this or we won't see a change happen. Yes. Like it, It is an impossibility yep. if there's not a difference in the way the parent is accepting the kid or interacting and engaging with the kid like it is – critical piece mm-hmm. of it but in approaching that from the same way we look at the strategies for the kids are it's just an adaptive nature like their strategies this, responding. the tantrums they're throwing mm. or the stealing that they're doing or whatever those are are adaptations of the system to try to get these core needs met the parents are the exact same yes so in the rigid discipline or the you know maybe shaming uh or the self-protection all of those are the strategies these adaptive strategies of the of the parent too yeah. that are now having these you know other effects? Absolutely. So in that, in our work with this, we're addressing both parent and child. And it's wonderful if we can get both parents. That sometimes is like really rare Mm -hmm. um, to get both parents that are all like really like primary caregivers involved in this process. But if that is a possibility, that is going to be where we see the most generalized change Mm -hmm. is to have, you know, work with both parents in that we're then trying to and working with kids trying to recreate some of these early attachment experiences Mm -hmm. how do we look at um the early experiences that had strategy embedded in them from a really young age and the child then determining I'm only acceptable with this strategy or I need more of this strategy or I need different strategies and go back to some of those really, really early attachment experiences with the strategies now being set aside. Mm. And this is where um, I took a training from Joan Lovett, some of the coolest like specific intervention techniques to Mm -hmm. do with this that were just beautiful and have played out beautifully. Mm. Um, Having like a parent even like a 10-year-old kid or like a bigger kid, like hold them and sing songs, read stories. Um, They do, she talks about this. It's like a you have a lollipop and you have the kid kind of lay in their lap and it's like mimicking the feeding process of like, Giving a cue to being to needing fed or needing that nurturance, but we're like putting a a sucker in their mouth Mm. and they can't give cues verbally, Mm. so they can only give nonverbal cues that they want the sucker or that they don't. And so, we're kind of talking about what these cues are, but as we're going, we're like replaying this dynamic. So, if the baby, which is you know, typically a little bit older of a kid, like a six, seven year old opens their eyes. You put the sucker in, mm-hmm. and when they close them, you take it out, mm. and and the child is getting to like have this interplay with the parent of yeah. saying like I can give you a cue that you are tuned into that responding you will respond to, to. Yes. yes, and it doesn't have to be an elaborate strategy, mm. but it can be you know a cue that you are tuning in enough to what my needs and desires are, and those matter enough to you. Yeah. To meet that. And so all of this can be happening and pairing those experiences with bilateral yeah. as a way to have these corrective attachment moments.
1: Yeah. I've done something um, not all dissimilar, but um, with specifically something that this parent child dyad was trying to find a place of refuge, like in their relationship together amidst like chaos. So it's kind of like a regulation technique uh-huh. of what they were wanting to do. Um, and so we were practicing, we were kind of experimenting with different ways of both like physical, like proximity to each other, as well as like shape of body posture and things like that. And what it came to was both of them feeling safe when they were both sitting on the ground, crisscross and knees almost touching, but not quite. And each of them tapping on the Mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. And in the negotiation of that, what I started to notice and what we kind of brought our collective attention to was all of the, um, kind of preferences and the like dislikes of how information would be delivered to both parties was coming up. So well, you're not doing it the way, you know, just, I don't know how to explain it. Just like, do it like, Uh just like, well, don't. And, you know, trying to direct somebody of how they feel comfortable seeing another person facing them. Yeah. Of, you know, to get to the place where we were all sitting on the ground crisscross took like 30 minutes Mm -hmm. because it was like, I don't know why I'm uncomfortable, but I am. Yeah. And so what I really want is for you to maybe like move your body like this and even to get that expression out Mm -hmm. took so long. And that to me is evident of a lot of the um, kind of interpersonal uh, difficult experiences that they've had together that have shown that me directly asking for what I want or need is not Not okay. okay. So I have to kind of like translate it or skew it or ask, ask for it indirectly. Yeah. Um, and that's not always effective. and so in the mismatches that's where we start to get really confused and very frustrated and then that pops into this rupture yes. and without a safe environment, repair is not going to happen. so then we keep growing apart in that way.
0: So that I love that example And in, in the recreation of that it's not to recreate the perfect moment that we wish we had had in the first place yeah, it's to be able to navigate all the strategies that are present, but, in the therapy room we have this designated time and space of safety and intention mm-hmm. plus a trained professional to help in yeah. guiding that and to navigate as we see all the strategies emerge and the the messiness but how do we still move through that to a place of still getting to that feeling seen, feeling felt, being connected, being safe. Yeah. And so it's not as I I think it's important to note in this that it's not about let's recreate it and it has to go perfectly like we had hoped it had Mm -hmm. in the first place. Even in that like sucker game, kids are running all over the place Mm -hmm. and you're like, come back over here and let me try to put the sucker in your mouth because you need this. Yeah. We're (laughs) supposed to
1: do this right now. Come on.
0: Yes. So there's strategy that comes up. And so being able to work with both partners you know the parent and the child and how do we stay flexible and move with the the complications and the difficulties and the the activation that comes in but still stay focused in on and oriented back to what's it like to stay in this connection
1: yeah some of the things it's interesting in that in in that example uh one of the reasons i like to work in that triad Perspective of having both the parent-childhood there. One of the things that brought them closer together was triangulating against me. Yeah. Of like, isn't this frustrating that I'm trying Stupid to challenge? Activity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I'm trying to challenge your natural way of being together by doing something very like provocative. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, this is dumb. I hate this. It's like, ah, and just got to have all those feelings and just like, why did you hate it and what were you yeah. really feeling that in their shared anger towards me they found space that they don't occupy together which is that we're on the same page
0: yeah yes so many um i don't we don't want to turn this into like a training of here's all the ways you can do this but what i would say is in your own mind think about those really like important um, attachment experiences and then start to think of how do we creatively create those opportunities in a session. Mm -hmm. So whether that's, you know, um, like feeding is really critical attachment experience. like Very intimate. Yeah, and that's what that sucker exercise is trying to do, but there's a lot of other ways you could mimic something like that. Mm -hmm. The expression of a need and that need getting met, the experience of having some form of activation or felt sense of uh, threat, and a caregiver responding Mm -hmm. in a protective, but yet warm, a way and so yeah. we're trying to say how can we create opportunities of these experiences or maybe they naturally come up and we pinpoint and say oh, that was yeah. significant
1: and I think one of the ways I was just talking about this at the consultee this last uh the last couple of days um one of the ways of what do you do when somebody says I don't remember any relational experiences
0: mm-hmm.
1: like that's to me strategy in that oh, of, yeah. like they're just editing out the things that are intolerable to them yeah. or whatever you know could be it's other painful reasons yeah But again, just recruiting the brain's natural way of storing memory, it's not linear. Mm -hmm. It's not time order or time specific. It's uh, symbolic. Mm -hmm. And so think less about a time in your life where this happened and think about a person with whom this happened. Who was the one you would turn to for when you were hungry? Mm -hmm. Who's the person you would turn to when you needed to go to the bathroom? Who's the person that you would turn to when you woke up scared at night? Yeah. Or would you turn to no one in any of those situations?
0: And memory, like in that with it not having to be linear, it's not saying who was it that you would turn to when you were hungry and then remember a time specifically they responded in this way. Or even like do you have an explicit memory of how they would have handled that? But what does your body feel when you think about that, going to mom because you're hungry?
1: Yes. That's it. That's does enough it, right there to activate yeah. the system oh. and to start actually working in that.
0: Yes. Because if the body sits in that and feels a sense of like security and mm-hmm. softness and assurance that the food's coming, mm-hmm. that's one thing. But if the body feels activation and big energy or maybe a shutdown and the, the need goes away or yeah. you know, just looking at how is the body responding to that idea of who did you go to mm-hmm. when you were hungry? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and that way of recruiting the brain's symbolic memory systems are going to be in touch with that sort of right hemispheric sensory activation that we're Mm -hmm. looking for in their affect presentation. Uh, It's going to stay away from, or it has the opportunity more so to stay away from uh, the left brain story Mm -hmm. that we get bogged down in sometimes or that convinces us that there's nothing here to look for. Yeah. There's nothing here important.
0: Yes. So in that we're looking for opportunities to recreate those experiences, Mm. another layer to that is we're not always working with the parent that you know the the original uh, first relationship parent mm-hmm. we could be working with a foster parent we could be working with an adoptive parent we could be working with a grown adult and no parent is present mm-hmm. and so in all of that staying like really considering how can we experience these, these moments of recreating that and finding a repair and when we don't have the original parent present, Um, It's beautiful work done with, again, like foster kids' adoption of how do we create attachment in this dyad that they didn't have the opportunity to experience that Mm. early on. And when we talk about grown adults, we're looking at it's happening within our relationship with them.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So when my client is, you know, kind of acting cold and i say can i get you a blanket and maybe if the safety is there i even like kind of put the blanket on them Mm -hmm. what is that recreating Mm. i have a a need and someone notices it and then steps in to meet that in a really safe and nurturing way that is recreating an early attachment experience
1: and at the same time offering a disconfirming experience yes like you potentially yeah i mean yeah yeah like it, it's offering it it doesn't mean that's going to happen mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're you're creating a space in which you know you're identifying the need and saying this can be a part of our relationship mm-hmm. if that's okay with you. yeah yeah
0: absolutely and so those there are um, opportunities like that constantly yeah everywhere in our sessions whether again it could be us with the child it mm-hmm. could be the parent with the child, it could be us with the adult. But that's um, looking for those moments and, and jumping in when we can. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a planned exercise for the session. It mm-hmm. could be. It could say, uh, like, a, I have read a child story to many clients, mm. different books, and just saying, like, this might be one of those moments that I could just read you the story and we could talk about it from a left brain way, or I could invite you to, like, lay down on the couch yeah. and curl up. And I'll lay the blanket on you Mm -hmm. and I'll sit down on the floor and I'll sit Indian style and I'll get out the book and I'll show you the pictures just Mm -hmm. like I would with my children it could be a specific intention behind it but it could also be like a natural moment that just emerges in a session where we're you know doing something else and this just comes up yeah and then we want to orient our like attention to that do we notice that this just happened what did that feel like
1: yeah to me that's the importance of really having you know, sat in trainings or, or read or, or just engaged with this research enough to know how to, like, what to pay attention to. Like, what's really important in being able to recognize when a moment just naturally presents itself? Yeah. We have to know what to look for. Uh, otherwise, think moments of incredible opportunity will just pass us by. Yeah. In just a very uh, human interaction that itself is just reflective of so many emotional learnings that yeah. happened in these early relational contexts
0: they can help us be so much more intentional in those moments if my client's cold i could say oh hey there's a blanket right behind you yeah you it's can just on the couch go meet ahead the need yourself yeah <laughs> and it can again like further perpetuate which could be fine that's totally fine yeah there's nothing wrong with that but if this is a client that i'm like oh this is a rich opportunity this could be
1: yeah this yeah. could be
0: really big yes we can see that there
1: let me invite and then see how it goes yes yeah
0: uh, the final point I wanted to make in this is well a, a lot of times the question is now what are we targeting? Right. Like all of this is very like resource heavy, but it's a resource that's gonna likely turn into broader memory reconsolidation. Yes. But the in EMDR, the question is often what what do we target? Mm-hmm. So to give some what material processing. Yes. Yeah. All of that is this these disconfirming experiences. But if we wanna hone in on something to target I always encourage people to be looking at okay, where did the strategies get determined, deemed necessary? And yeah. sometimes that's from the very, very beginning, mm-hmm. right? But even more like that specific strategy that we're seeing—if it's a child who's you know throwing huge tantrums or like you know stealing—those examples I was using before, we can start to focus in on what were those ruptures mm. and how do we reprocess those relational ruptures that happened that really perpetuated the individual to say, I need this, and maybe even further developed the strategy in certain ways. Those can be helpful. That's not, in my opinion, that is by just processing that isn't going to create the generalized healing that we're looking for. No. But it's supportive in the process. Yes.
1: And I think in, in sort of explaining or just expounding upon why we believe that that that's mm-hmm. not going to be sufficient in updating one's internal working model of self and other, is because that one instance is only a drop, yes, in this you know large ocean of mm-hmm. experiences, um, and so to see that generalizing effect, we really need to get at the essence of what was the main takeaways, so to speak, yeah. of that uh, of that relationship, and how was that, uh, in you know installing your sense of self and your way of making sense of the unfolding of the world around you? And how have you now taken that template up and started to really nuance it into the other relationships or relational contexts of your life?
0: And I think if we're selecting the target well, by reprocessing it, we do have the potential for it to that memory is identified because it is representative yes. of that larger network. Yep. But we have to be very aware of how, like, which ones we're selecting, and it may take more than one. Um, but working on what were the ruptures, the attachment ruptures or relational ruptures that created the felt need that I have to rigidly hold on to this strategy.
1: One of the questions I often get that I feel like is a great one for us to just place here is: What do you do when repair is not possible? With the person mm. that it's created so that often rupture. Not possible. Right. And so I think that there's this desire if, you know, just in the first hearing of, well, the goal is to repair the rupture, that that's ultimately what's leading to a greater sense of an integrated self and a, you know, authentic presentation in the world of here's who I, you know, am and I feel safe and secure here and I mm-hmm. can ask for what I need, I can set boundaries, I can do all the things that this. Dynamic psychotherapy is trying to help me do. Then we need to repair with the people that hurt us the most. And I think that's just a misattribution.
0: Yeah, I I think of like maybe like this is random numbers, but five percent of the time that's even possible (laughs) in in just any situation. Right. We rarely ever, in the midst of therapy, get to say you get to repair because one, it's we're working so often in the past. And in hopes of it, you know, shaping and affecting the future and the present. But we can't, even if mom is still in their life and they're like 15 or 25 now, it's not repairing the relationship as it was then. Mom's right. not mom, the same mom, and I'm not the same kid. And so we're never like really the goal isn't to have to repair in that specific relationship but it's the system's ability to experience repair. Yes. And that is again like the re- therapeutic relationship right there is offering that um yeah that disconfirming experience of like the system gets the repair but it's not necessarily the relationship is always going to get the repair.
1: Yes. And so what I find myself doing so often is can we create this internal space for you to recognize and really take, you know, acknowledge some of the the gains and losses Mm -hmm. to put it simply of what this relationship was like for you not good or bad but what was some of the realities Mm -hmm. uh recognizing that internally and thus creating a space where you can truly you know just own what it was that happened And how that created a response in you and that that response then turned into personality and that carried itself out into the world while also acknowledging the external. So if we have this internal space of creating all of Mm -hmm. this work, the external can still be uh, heavy in strategy Mm -hmm. if the context demands it. Because if we're not safe, we're going to use strategy.
0: And I think that internal space, if it can be in in the best attempt externalized in the therapeutic relationship. It will never be as pure as it is experienced internally, but in its most closest form, if we can work towards creating that there, Mm -hmm. then that gives this hope of like, if I can experience this here, in this one relationship, what could be possible in others. And then we can adapt it. We might need a little bit of strategy. We will need strategy. Yes. We might need some of that here, but we can start to have a more clear awareness of how much do I really need the strategy? How rigidly do I have to hold on to it?
1: Yeah, do I need it with everyone? Yes. Or do I need to know where it just precisely fits? Yes. Because I think one of my goals in establishing that internal versus external uh, kind of place of processing is that we can, through the internal work that's being experienced interpersonally with me as the therapist, mm-hmm. we can then start to understand how to identify relationships that don't make us feel safe yeah, and that we can then start to kind of just subjectively set limits and, and mm-hmm. objective boundaries with that person to then say, you know, this relationship is not in its current way leading to me growing. And leading to me feeling safe and connected with myself and what actually makes me feel healthy Mm -hmm. and so i want to either address that or learn how to start kind of saying i can't have you in my life Mm -hmm. the way that you have been up to now because of these reasons
0: and if i'm going to choose to still have you in my life i can still employ the strategies i need to stay safe enough there and save the most um vulnerable pure parts of myself for spaces that i'm safe in yes
1: exactly mm-hmm. right knowing that i can identify relational context where that's the the reality and that the way that i feel unsafe in this relationship doesn't mean that i'm going to feel re- unsafe in all yes. relational contexts
0: yeah mm. it's a beautiful summary of all of that yes <laughs> so Bridget, I'm gonna end it back the way you always end it with me. What's your biggest takeaway?
1: I think the power of the first relationship, uh, cannot be overstated.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the centrality of forming some of these relational templates that then really influence the way we make sense of ourselves and in, in relation to the world mm-hmm. and those who inhabit it with us. Um that to me is just so important to recognize as a therapist of when we're working with somebody in the room, we're not just working with them. Yeah. We're working with all of the relational templates that they've gathered, which have representatives internalized in them yep. from the past. And so when we're going about target selection or memory reprocessing or greater reconsolidation, we're, we're working with these these people that we carry around with us.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think my, you know, coming from that and then looking at the practical piece, like I said, what do we do in the room? It's with that knowledge and awareness that we approach our clients with. Mm. And then from that, being able to just be ready and primed for the opportunity that we get for those disconfirming experiences, for those corrective moments. Yes. And if we're watching for those and we see them and when it's safe enough, we, you know, give attention to them. Yeah. So powerful.
1: Yes. I could not agree more.
0: Okay. Well, we will probably dive in more on this topic. I'm sure in many other episodes, this is just kind of a, I feel like a little drop in the bucket from what we really talk about. Honestly, um, shameless plug here. This is all that we talk about in our SIP2, but even kind of the foundations of it in SIP1 training. Yeah. So this is like three days worth of material that start right here, and yeah. then we just go from there.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. So. I think that was you know when we were talking about the need for SIP two, even in writing SIP one, we we're like, okay, we can't put all of this into one training. Yeah, people are just gonna like not understand what we're talking about. Um, and it was the first relationship that was always going to be the start of mm-hmm. SIP two, and so um, this is very near and dear to. Yeah a lot of the way we think and feel at Mm -hmm. Beyond Healing. So
0: Yes. So if you want more, reach out. We'll be here to talk about it anytime. Yes, absolutely. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today and listening in. And we'll be back with more material in a couple weeks. See you. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today... Check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.
1: This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt, but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and
0: those around you
1: in the stories you hear.
0: The Evidence-Based Therapist is an educational podcast where we read so you don't have to. On this podcast, we discuss seminal, recent, and relevant research on psychotherapeutics and the embodied relational sciences. How do we know what is evidence-based, and how do we use it in our practice? You'll find out on the EBT Podcast.